Good morning. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. Um, This morning, we leave the prologue, where we've spent the last few weeks, and we enter into the narrative proper. The action begins. John the Baptist is center stage, and we will uh, look at verses 19 to 28 of John chapter 1. I'd like to begin our time by reading these verses. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. John <clears throat> chapter 1, 19 to 28. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Lord God, I pray that as we study these verses, um, we can see John the Baptist's faithful testimony, and we can see the blindness of these Jews from Jerusalem, that you might guard us from their error, that you might help us to see the glory of your Son in your word. Lord, we want to behold who you are. We want to receive Christ for who he is. So give the grace and the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. The rest of John chapter 1 takes place in a number of episodes or days. Um, It begins with John front and center stage here. Then in 29, after he testifies first to the Jews from Jerusalem, which is what we're looking at this morning, he'll testify to those around him to Jesus, starting in 29. So the contrast is here, we're seeing John's testimony, his report, what he had to say to those sent from Jerusalem to question him. Then, verse 29, the next day, he's testifying to those who've come out to receive his baptism, those who've come out to see him, to Christ. Then the next day, starting in 35, he's actually sending people to Jesus. And then the camera, as it were, goes with Jesus and those disciples. And John will leave the scene for a while. But right now, in verses 19 to 28, John is front and center. John's faithful witness to the Jews. We're going to look at this in four points. First, sort of setting up the event, John is questioned by the Jewish leaders. I almost put in interrogated I don't know if you picked up the intensity of the testimony language. Let me, let me read it. Um, this is the testimony of John when the Jews and priests sent 
priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It almost has a legal bearing. And the way John introduces this, this is the testimony of John. We've been hearing in the prologue, John was a witness. He was sent, chapter 1, verse 6, there's a man sent from God whose name is John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, verse 8, but came to bear witness about the light. Well, now we're seeing John do that. It's possible, like I suggested last week, that there are some sects of John still in existence. We know in Acts 19 that, that Paul came across disciples of John who had not heard of Jesus. It's possible that John is reemphasizing against some possible sect that elevated John the Baptist above Christ. Um, but what is clear is John was a faithful witness. So let's just set up the when, the where, the who, and the what. When. Um, this is the first day of John's first week of Jesus' ministry. The first day of John's first week of Jesus' ministry. I'll draw your attention to this. It's, it's interesting. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when. So here's our starting point. The when is when they sent Jew, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to interrogate John. Then verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. I believe there's an implied next day in verse 39. They came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. Then, verse 43, the next day. Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. You add all that up, I believe you get seven days. And then we end this in verse 12 of chapter 2. After this, this is after the wedding at Cana, he went down to Capernaum where his mother and his brother, with his mother, brother, and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So John lines up the events from 119 through 212 as the next day, the next day, the next day. They stayed with them a day, three to the third day, and then he just lets it loose. And until we get to the passion narrative, tight chronology is, no, is absent in John. So working, working backwards, John is taking pains for us to know the things that happen in verses 19 through 2.12 happened bang, 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 bang. One tight week. And so that makes me ask, why? I have, I have a couple of ideas. I'll mention two of them this morning um, and possibly a third a little later. But just to notice that for whatever reason, John wants us to be aware, and, it, and presumably it's important for us to know the things that happened here happened the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day. And so I'm going to give you two suggestions. One, this is continuing John's literary connection with Genesis. You know, we, we commented when we looked at 1.1 that John is clearly echoing the first verse of the Pentateuch. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then from there in John, we go to creation, light, darkness. I mean, this is, this is following the topical arrangement of Genesis 1. Well, if you keep reading in Genesis, what do you get? You get a creation week followed by a marriage. And here we get a week followed by a wedding. I'm not trying to allegorize this. I'm just saying John's echoing, following some of the literary style of Genesis is still evident. I, I think he's still 
following some of that pattern. And a second significance of this week that he lays out is this is helpful or helps to coordinate these events with the synoptics. I don't know about you, but the first time I read John 1, having read the other Gospels, and I realized that before Jesus called Peter from the boat, he'd met Peter here at the camp of John the Baptist. I went, whoa, wait, what? And so John, we've seen, is aware of the other Gospels. He, he references Matthew in John chapter 4. And so being aware of the other Gospels, I think one of the reasons why he gives us this tight week is to enable us to fit this into the chronology. Where this takes place is before Jesus' first miracle. We see at the wedding at Cana in 2.11, this the first of his signs, but it's after the baptism of Jesus. We know that because the next day, John references the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus does not occur in John's gospel, but John the Baptist speaks of it. Look at verse 32. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John is talking about, in the past tense, the baptism of Jesus. So these events take place between the baptism of Jesus and Jesus' first miracle. And we know from Mark that immediately after Jesus is baptized by the Holy Spirit, Mark um, 1, 11, and 12, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So where do we place this? After Jesus has gone out to the wilderness, before he's worked any notable signs or miracles. So this is as close to the first week of Jesus' ministry as we can get. And John's tight week helps us figure that out and place that. <coughs> Pardon me. So the when, first day of John's first week of Jesus' ministry. Where? Bethany across the Jordan. Now this is not the Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. That Bethany, we find out in John 11, is about two miles from Jerusalem. This is across the Jordan. If you look at a map of Israel, you'll make it's clear this is not the same place. There's scholars disagree on where this is, but it's somewhere out in the wilderness, across the Jordan, somewhere remote, many miles from Jerusalem. And who, who's doing the questioning? Priests and Levites from the Jews in Jerusalem. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And so now we're getting the major negative players in the gospel. We've already seen this framed in the prologue. Um, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a little later in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so here are the people who, in chapter 11, this conglomeration of the um, priests, the Levites, and the Pharisees, in John 11, um, 47 and 48, will say, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to counsel together and said, what should we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, this is the first usage in John's gospel of the Jews in, in something 
clearly negative. Uh, John can use the Jews in a number of ways. And when he talks to the woman at the well, he can say salvation is of the Jews. And there it just seems to mean the Israelites. But here, and in many other usages, the Jews seems to be a reference to the unbelieving religious leaders. Um, in John chapter 9, we learn that people didn't confess Christ openly for the fear of the Jews. In Jerusalem, they didn't confess Jesus openly for fear of the Jews. Now, presumably, these are Jews who are afraid of the Jews. Um, and it's clear John is using this term more narrowly to refer to the unbelieving religious leaders who are ultimately going to put Jesus to death. Now, this is that usage here. So they're sent. This is this delegation sent by the Jews in Jerusalem. What are they sent to do? Well, to find out who and what he claimed to be. Who and what he claimed to be. Now, this, this matter happens a lot in the gospel. The Jews and the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes seem very intent on regulating, observing, and, and permitting or not permitting religious worship and service. They seem less interested on whether or not it's valid or not, whether or not it's righteous or not. We see them in chapter 2 when Jesus... Go to chapter 2. And, and this is partly what we're learning from of what's wrong with these people. Why do they miss it so badly? In John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. Over 2.13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? Notice what they don't do. They don't approve of what he's done, and they don't condemn it. They, they just want to know, do you have your papers in order? Do you have a permit for that? What sign do you do to do this? We, we control religious worship in Israel, and we'd like to know on what authority you just did. It's the same thing they're doing here. Turn to chapter 3, I believe, and when I get there, I'll argue it's the same thing Nicodemus is doing. Again, neither for or against. We're, we're coming with our, doing our inspection. There was a man of the Pharisees, and Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. And I'll explain this in more detail when we, when we get there. But Nicodemus, I believe, is showing up representing a group, and we know who the group is, and we know what they do. They send people to size up would-be religious leaders and check their credentials. That's what they're doing here with John the Baptist back in chapter 1. They want to know who's this guy. They've heard word that after 400 years of silence, possibly God has raised up a prophet for Israel. And he's out in the Judean wilderness, across the Jordan. And so the big wigs in Jerusalem send a delegation to size him up. Who he is, what he is, why he's doing what he's doing. Notice what they're not interested in. And we'll see this more clearly in the text. That they're not interested in if he really is a prophet or not. If he really has a message from God or not. They just want to regulate their sphere of, of control and domain. So John is questioned by the Jewish leaders. Next. Point two, John confesses who he was not. John confesses who he was not. Now here, we're going to get a brief lesson in messianic expectations. There are three people they ask him about, three people that we 
glean and gather the Jews of, of Jesus' day were looking for, promised in Scripture. Um, he conf- so they said, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So first we learn he is not the Christ. And I'm sure if you've, if you've come here for the last few years, you know that Christ, Messiah, and anointed one is Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew, and anointed is English for this person, the anointed one whom the Lord would send. And briefly, um, in the Old Testament, various people are said to be anointed of the Lord. Um, Saul is the Lord's anointed for a time. David becomes the Lord's anointed. But as the, as the Old Testament prophecies build, it becomes clear we're looking for a very special anointed one coming. Psalm 2 makes that clear. Now, t- turn briefly to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 actually joining together that the anointed would also be the Davidic king, would also be the Lord's son. Um, and, and by the time you get to Psalm 2 in the development of Messianic theology, it's clear we're not just looking for any old anointed, but someone special coming. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the anointed from the first stanza in verse 2 is now enabled the king in verse 6. And in verse 7, he becomes the son. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the language of the Davidic covenant. And so what Psalm 2 shows us, among other things, is that the, the heir of David coming that God promised in his covenant, is also the Messiah, is also the Son of God, or someone who would call God Father and be his son. And so there's, there's more development of the Messianic theology in the Old Testament, but this is the primary figure they're looking for, the primary expectation they have. Sadly, to this day of, of practicing Jews, that's what they're looking for. That's who they're looking for, the Christ, the Messiah. And John was in no way... Pardon me. <coughs> John was in no way unclear on this point. The, the text is, is emphatic. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. As if to say, if there are any people living in John's day, John the Gospel's day, who think John the Baptist was more than he said he was, you can't put that on John the Baptist. He was completely clear on this point. Um, the Christ, we will learn in John's Gospel, is in fact Jesus The Christ is, in fact, Jesus. He says this plainly to the Samaritan woman at the well. The woman said to him in John 4, 25, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we probably already know this if we've read the other Gospels, John's assuming, but we'll we'll definitely learn by chapter 4 clearly the Christ is Jesus. He's already given Jesus that title in the prologue. So John the Baptist is not the Christ. Now that's the number one figure the Jews of Jesus' day are expecting. 
When he denies being the Christ, they move on to number two. Are you Elijah? Now, where do they get that expectation from? They get that expectation from Malachi chapter five. And in Malachi chapter, sorry, chapter four, verses five through six, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land to the decree of utter destruction. So they say to him, they've read Malachi, they say, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Now this can be confusing because Jesus in another gospel plainly says, if you'll accept him, he is Elijah. The angel who predicted his birth to his parents said in Luke chapter 117, he will come, their child John, will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, then he quotes the passage in Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now I'm going to say here now is John is either not fully aware of who he is or I think more likely denying he is not, you can't even say reincarnated. Elijah is one of two Old Testament figures who did not die. Enoch walked with God and was not, and Elijah went up into heaven in the fiery chariot. And John the Baptist is not that same person who went up into heaven in the fiery chariot. I think that's all he's saying. That's why Jesus can say, if you'll accept him, he's Elijah. He's he's an Elijah-like figure. We can talk more about that in my ABF, but John did not claim to be Elijah. What we can certainly gather is the way he liked to view himself. He will clearly speak to who he is. He will give an unambiguous answer. He won't hint around. He will he'll quote the text and he'll cite the author. And he says he's not Elijah. The final question they ask, are you the prophet? Who is the prophet? Turn to Deuteronomy 18. This is another um, messianic expectation. The Old Testament doesn't have many figures to expect, but this is another major one. Deuteronomy 18 It's worth turning there because this issue of Jesus being the prophet, and I'll I'll spoiler alert, Jesus is the prophet, um, will come up repeatedly in John's gospel. So let's take a look at where this is. So in Deuteronomy 18, you remember Moses is writing Deuteronomy. He's not going to cross over the Jordan with Israel. And he's, he's writing in the law. And in 1815, we read, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Skip down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. So you get that. I'm going to raise up a prophet. You need to listen to him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, which John does not record, What does God the Father audibly say? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's where we get crystal clear. Jesus is this prophet. But the Jews have read Deuteronomy and they're expecting a prophet. And they're not even aware that the Messiah is the prophet. They've got three people when in reality we know there are actually two people. There's Elijah and there's the Messiah who is the prophet. So he is not the prophet who Moses prophesied would come after him who is in fact Jesus, the Messiah. We know, and we're going to learn as we study the gospel, that the one who is the Messiah is also the prophet. Now, this is what the people will come to realize. When, after he feeds the 5,000 in John 6, 
14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And in John 7, 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So as we go forward in John's gospel, this issue, is Jesus the prophet, will come up again and it'll be resolved. Yes, he is. The one Moses predicted who would speak God's word to whom we must listen, this is Jesus. But they're asking John. So these are the three figures that are in their awareness. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. So that kind of frustrates them. And we move from who John confessed he was not to John explains who he was. So they said to him, verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to the ones who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So turn, turn to Isaiah 40. Um, John defines himself this way. And if we had time, I'd walk you through more of Isaiah. But in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, is largely focused on judgment. But starting in chapter 40 and through the rest of the book, the emphasis of his prophecy is on comfort, restoration, salvation. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up and every mountain and hill should be made low. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord should be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And John the Baptist says, you want to know who I am? That's me. I'm that guy. And he makes it clear, lest anyone miss, as the prophet Isaiah said, he's referencing this. So let's pause. Keep, keep staying here in Isaiah 40. Then who is John claiming to be biblically? Well, first, most obviously, he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 41 through 5. This text gets referenced in conjunction with John in Matthew and in Luke as well. And this one spoken of here is to prepare Israel to recognize and receive the Lord. Lord, all caps. When you see in your Old Testament, Lord in all caps, that's the translator's way of indicating the divine name, what is sometimes known as the Tetragrammaton, or as we best guess how to pronounce it, Yahweh or Jehovah in some of the older translations. This is God's covenant name. This isn't just generic God. This is the God of the covenant at Sinai, the God of the burning bush, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This one is preparing a way for the Lord. And the picture is the advance team of a mighty king or potentate would send people to make sure the road he was going to travel was smooth and wasn't bumpy. And they might fill in some valleys and they might chop down some hills because a powerful king, a great man, needs a smooth ride. That's the idea, preparing his entrance. This is even borrowing from Habakkuk. If you remember, the Lord in Habakkuk comes through the wilderness from Seir and Mount Paran. The same picture here, the Lord coming through the wilderness to his people. 
And this voice is one going ahead, preparing the way for the Lord God as he comes. And more striking to our point is what is going to typify the coming of the Lord? Every valley, Isaiah 40, verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Does that not link in perfectly with the prologue and what we've just been looking at? And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is he of whom John testified, he who comes after me is before me, for he is greater than me, for from his fullness we have all received a grace in place of a grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. We talked about how what Jesus brings is a fuller, clearer revelation of God and his glory. What John the Baptist is claiming to be is one who's going as the advance vanguard of none other than the living God coming to his people. And what would typify the living God coming to his people would be the glory of the Lord revealed and all flesh shall see it. This links perfectly with John's prologue with his introduction, which means who John is claiming to be even though he's not claiming to be the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, is someone of huge moment. This, this is the advance guard for the living God coming to his people. He announced the revelation of the glory of the Lord. That's, that's something. So, so, so get this. They ask him. They, they're interrogating him. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Well, then tell us who you are. Okay, I am the one spoken of in Isaiah 40, 1 through 5. And if you're tracking with that, that is a huge claim. And it further means that coming on his heels is none other than the living God. Yet these bureaucrats... These lackeys of the Jews in Jerusalem aren't interested in following that thread. Look, look what happens next. John makes this huge claim, stunning claim. And remember, 400 years of silence in Israel's history prophetically. And no, he's not who they're expecting, but he clearly identifies who he is. Do they, do they pick up on that? Do they explain yourself further? What are you saying? Nope. Now, they've been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? They don't care. They're not interested. They're interested in giving an account to the people who sent them. They're not interested. The Pharisees want to know, then, why he's baptizing. We don't want unauthorized religious practices taking place, not under our watch. So John answers them, but he doesn't really answer them. They ask him, why is he baptizing? And he starts there. He'll actually give a, a fuller explanation of why he's baptizing the next day. <coughs> Excuse me. If you look in uh, verse 31, the next day, he, he gives a better account. I myself did not know him. 
But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize. Well, if you press John, what's his answer? Why am I baptizing? Because someone, he, sent me to baptize. That's why. And I think if you press him, he'd say that he, the someone, is God. But he doesn't give that answer here. No, I kind of get the feeling that John is pressing the point. He's, I almost like to think of him frustrated or stunned that they're not picking up on what he's just said. Who are you? I am the one preparing the way for Yahweh to come to his people that his glory might be beheld. Okay, then why are you baptizing them? We've got to give an answer to the people who sent us. Okay, I baptize with water, he says. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So, John's answer, they are asking the wrong question. They're missing the obvious. They're not interested. They're asking the wrong question. John identifies himself as Isaiah 40. And they move on to, okay, so what's all this baptism about? You got your permits. They signed off properly. And he says, don't you get it? I'm baptizing with water. Why are you concerned about that? Someone is in your midst. Someone is in your midst who you don't know. Who's the strap of his sandal. I'm not worthy to untie. Jesus, I mean, John is here announcing who is present. Going back, why is this the first day? Why in this week is this the first day? I would suggest to you is because this is the first or one of the first days after Jesus returned from being tempted in the wilderness. The significance of this day is that Jesus is present. He's in your midst. He's not, he's not, the camera hasn't focused in on him. We just know he's there. And John is referencing that he's there. And again, he's building on what Isaiah 40 says. I'm coming to announce him. The living God, Yahweh, is coming to his people. Okay, then why are you baptizing? I'm only baptizing with water, guys. But among you stands someone so great, so mighty, that I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. They're asking the wrong question. Unknown to them, the Lord God stands among them. That's just awesome. He's there. He's there. Jesus will come more into view if you think of this like a um, a screenplay in, in the next day when John points to him. And then on the third day, when disciples actually go to him, he'll start speaking and interacting. But we're just announced he's here. He's here. Unknown to them, the Lord God stands among them. And this one who is here is infinitely greater than John. This links back to um, chapter 1 of John, verse 15, right? John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Because again, the Jewish thinking is the one who comes earlier is greater, right? So that's why we have to say David's greater son because the logic is certainly David's greater than his descendant. 
That's, that's the logic in place in Hebrews when, when the author of Hebrews is arguing that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and obviously Abraham's greater than his grandson Levi. So if Abraham honored Melchizedek, then in a manner of speaking, Levi in the loins of Abraham honored him as well. That's the Jewish thought. And John the Baptist is testifying, even though I'm going ahead of him and, and I'm chronologically on the scene before him, he is greater than me. Now, in, in verse 15, it's because he pre he's pre-existent. So John is making it clear, among you stands one of whom I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. He is infinitely greater than John. Also, notice that the link in the prologue to verse 10. John says, among you stands one you do not know. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John is illustrating for us here, John the gospel writer. I know it can be confusing with all the Johns. John the gospel writer is illustrating for us just how it is that Jesus could come to his own and they wouldn't know him. These are religious elites. These are people who know their Bibles. These are people concerned about religious practice, very religious people, so much so that they send a group out into the wilderness across from the Jordan just to see what's going on with this wild man eating locusts and honey in the wilderness. And they come out, and they're very intent on fulfilling their commission. they got to give an answer to the people in Jerusalem, and it goes right over their head. John spells it out for them. First, he references Isaiah. You'd think that might get them excited. Wait a sec. You're who? What? They move on to, okay, so then why are you baptizing? Do you guys, I'm, I'm baptizing with water. Fair enough, but do you not understand? Someone so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace is among you and you don't know him. What's the obvious question raised? Who is he? Where is he? Which is why it's so tragic how verse 28 closes the text down. These things took place in Bethany. There, there is nothing more to the story. They don't ask any further questions. That's as far as it goes. He came to his own. His own did not know him. John is spelling it out for them. John is getting him right to the point. And they are not interested. He is infinitely greater than John, the one coming after him, but he is of no interest to them. It's, it's, it's tragic. Here's this prophet spelling it out for them. Here's this prophet telling them, do you, do you not understand someone that great is he's here? It'd be like me saying he's in the room. These things, the story ends. There's, there's no more narrative here. And presumably they go home. They got that close to the Messiah. That close. He could have been rubbing elbows with them. They weren't interested. They weren't, they weren't interested. This, this is how you can be a religious person. This is how you can be a biblical person and miss the mark entirely. The, these people model for us the unbelief. Now, the good news is even as they leave the scene, we are staying with the action. We'll be here next week and the week after, and we're going to see Jesus' glory. We 
on the inside, no, he's, he's here, he's here. And the very next day, John's going to point out exactly where he is, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it's the next day. These guys are gone because they weren't interested. They weren't interested. The story just ends. These things happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So as we get ready to sing our closing song, I would just urge you uh, to be to beware of, of a cold sizing up of Jesus like these leaders in Jerusalem. Come behold his glory. Ask the question. In one sense, they, they could be more respected. I could deal with this more if they said, we don't believe you. You're not who you say you are. But for John to raise the specter of who he might be, and they don't even for or against. They don't affirm he's a prophet or deny he's a prophet. It's just not what they're interested in. They're here to Identify if he's one of these three people and they're trying to figure out why he's baptizing and they're not really going to get distracted from anything else. As, as we go through, don't, don't be blinded to that. Decide, is this one who John presents, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh, or is he not? Is he, is he worthy of worship and honor or not? Um, we, we, we believe he is. Please stand as we sing our closing song.